666. Traffic is clear ahead from here to the afterlife, but it's hell outside. For the next hour, you're on nightmare time. So let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to Nightmare Alley, the offshoot podcast from Nightmare on Film Street. I'm Kim. I'm John. And we're here today to share with you the 30th anniversary reunion panel for Gremlins 2 The New Batch uh, that we hosted as part of Salem Horror Fest. Included in the panel was director Joe Dante, producer Michael Fennell, and actors Robert Picardo and Zach Galligan. We got the chance to sit down with the gang virtually on Zoom to chat about all things Gremlins 2, Girl Gremlin, Brain Gremlin, Christopher Lee, all of the amazing hijinks of the zaniest sequel of all time. And thank you so much to Salem Horror for allowing us to host the panel. It was so much fun. Salem Horror is still happening until the end of the month. You have a couple days left to go get your Salem Horror on virtually. There are more panels, discussions, films, and shorts to check out, and you can catch them all at SalemHorror.com for just a couple more days. There's video of this entire interview over there as well, uh, but we you know, thought it would be a nice Halloween treat to share it with you here on the podcast. So without further ado, here's the 30th anniversary reunion panel for Gremlins 2 The New Batch. Remember the last time we told you not to feed them after midnight. We told you to keep them away from the light. And the most important warning of all, we told you to never, ever get them wet. You didn't listen. They're mutating. Sir, is the building on fire? No, no, that's a false alarm. <laughs> Are you trying to panic New York City? Absolutely not. <laughs> so the monsters are real? I didn't say that. <laughs> Gremlins 2. The new batch. Now, was that civilized? No, clearly not. Fun, but in no sense civilized. Hello, Salem Horror Fest, and welcome to the 30th anniversary of Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Uh, I'm Kim. I'm John. And we're here today with stars Zach Galligan and Robert Picardo, producer Michael Fennell, and director Joe Dante to talk about the funniest, slimiest, most off-the-wall sequel that Hollywood has ever produced. Thank you so much for joining us today. Certainly. Thanks. Thank you. I've heard Pleasure. Godfather 2 uh, described that way. <laughs> slimiest? <laughs> slimiest. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the grittiest. So uh, I'm sure there were so many pitches and ideas uh, surrounding like what you could possibly do with a sequel to Gremlins. What made you finally nail well, down New York <laughs> they, as a setting? 
there were a lot and they all preceded us because after <laughs> after no, no, making no, no, we worked with we we worked with Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson and very half very half-heartedly because oh, we, yes, we, we but... made we made the original dramas it was very exhausting luckily it was a huge hit and everybody was excited finally after kind of tossing it off while we were making it and then they said immediately we'll have to have another one right away and the idea of going through that experience again right away was really not that appealing to me. And yeah, so, so we had a bunch of half-hearted meetings with uh, writers. Uh, and, and, and we really couldn't come up with a good reason for the sequel other than the fact that the picture had made money. And so when we went away, they continued without us uh, with a number of now nameless writers <laughs> who came up with concepts like Gremlins Go to Las Vegas and Gremlins Go to Mars and Gremlins Meet Ma and Pa Kettle, you know, anything they could think of. I mean, Mars <laughs> would have been pretty great. <laughs> And they and they really never could they could never really nail it. So they came back to us almost five years later, which is pretty late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And said, uh, "Well, we finally figured out that because they never just understood or liked the movie in the first place. So it was very oh. difficult for them to wrap their heads around it. So they said, "Well, we figured you guys must have had something to do with the success of the first picture. So if you if <laughs> if if you give us a picture next summer, we'll let you do whatever you want." Yeah, it just has to be called Gremlins in the title and Gremlins have to be in it. Other than that, <laughs> other than that, you're on your own. And it's not an offer that you get. It's an it's an offer, frankly, that we couldn't refuse. You actually ran into Terry Semmel, who was the president of the studio at the time, on the lot. And he said this to you. Yeah. And he came back to the office. He said, now, now you know, now this might be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, obviously the technology had advanced quite a bit. Uh, from the puppetry of the first picture. And so we were able to do things and write things and plan things that we only imagined doing in the first picture or tried to do and failed. Um, and so we did know we wanted to bring back the two leads, Zach and Phoebe, because they were the sort of the, the human anchors of the movie. But the rest of it, we wanted it to be, we wanted it to be different. So uh, when Charlie Haas uh, came on, we talked about, we had long skull sessions and talked about what can we do to make it not be in Kingston Falls. Let's take it to New York. Let's have it be a, a movie about the coming 90s and let's make it, let's up the ante. And so now the Gremlins are loose in New York, which of course we couldn't afford to do. So, <laughs> so Charlie came up with the idea of the, of the smart building, which is really pretty brilliant. Now you uh, could which, do it, of course, with CGI. Well, well now you could do whatever you wanted. Yeah, yeah, but, you, you know, then... And, and get up on the subways and everything else. But then it was still, you know, all had to be all practical with puppets. So uh, we, we were somewhat limited to... Uh, to uh, so the so he he came up with the idea of the building I think I think that was Charlie yeah that was Charlie's idea and uh, and and also the idea of when when we went to Chris Wallace who had done the original Gremlin design and asked him you know if he'd like to return and uh, by then he'd become a movie director and he kind of I don't know I don't think he, Plus he almost it. died making the first movie. <laughs> oh no I mean, he, he did he had a terrible kidney I mean stone. I mean literally <laughs> at one point I had to take him to the Burbank to the to the emergency room in Burbank. I mean, he was he was just so exhausted and stressed out. This was like probably two thirds of the way through shooting, and it was just you know, I mean, <laughs> it was quite an assignment. I mean, he had to, he was in yeah. charge of making all these puppets, and they all had to do different things, and they all operated by drafts of people under under the set, and and it was it was extremely complicated, and he he really became exhausted. So he didn't really seem to want to go back there, and he plus he wanted to be a director, so. Um, so I was friends with Rick Baker, who uh, had worked with Mike and I briefly on The Howling until um, 
which online just got me into the fact that we were making it. And, and then he said, you always he said you'd make my werewolf picture. <laughs> and so Rick, had, Rick left and, and we, Rafa team took over and everything turned out fine. But in the meantime, Rick had become you know, extremely well known and uh, popular and uh, successful. And when we went to him and said, well, what do you think about doing a Gremlins movie? He, he, he balked at them. He said, well, I, I mean, it's Chris's designs. What do, what, do I, what do I get to do? I don't want to just work with somebody else's design. And so to partly to placate him and to get him on board, uh, we came up with the idea of the genetics lab, which allowed us to create different kinds of Gremlins that he could have input into and that we could you know, design new characters. And, and, and that was good for the movie because we, we didn't just have the, the same Stripe and Gizmo problem. We had now lots and lots of different characters, all of whom had different functions and sometimes were animated and sometimes were puppets and sometimes were stop motion. And, you know, we could run the gamut of, uh, of what we did. And so it's, 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 it seems like a very unstructured movie when you watch it, but it, but it actually, uh, everything is there for a reason. Yeah, and that genetics lab really opens you up to... Like, you had carte blanche to make the film. The genetics lab gives you carte blanche for the gremlins across the board. You could make whatever your imagination came up with. Right, but you got to remember, these gremlins movies don't just have gremlins in them. They've also got people in them. So it's very important to have a lot of interesting, colorful characters uh, populate the movie. And and so one of the things I think is, is, is best in the movie is that it doesn't rely just on the special effects. It doesn't rely just on the gremlins. Um, all the other characters are quirky and funny, and Charlie Haas is a very, very funny writer. And uh, and when you got people like Bob and Zach, who are, are you know, Zach already knew the part because he played it before, but now Bob was playing a completely different part. And uh, these guys ad lib really well, and they do a lot of good improvs. And a lot of the best stuff in movies that I've done has come from just people just talking about the scene and coming up with, well, what if we did this? And what if he said that? And what if I did this? And so there's, a, there's a, a certain sense of spontaneity and looseness to the movie that I think uh, has helped it weather the sands of time. And I mean, there's there's a lot of, too, um, acting with the puppets in this movie. So you guys actually have to do some of your own puppeteering and stuff. How is that getting attacked by gremlins and then having to um, maneuver them as well? Well, Bob uh, actually has, 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 a, has a kind of a of a, a relationship. Yes, a, a, a love, a love interest. A yeah, love interest. Yes, we have, uh, everybody wants to know, I mean, I, I always thought that Gremlins 3 should begin with the offspring of Forster and Greta <laughs> Gremlin. Uh, the hybrid. You know, because, yeah, the, the, the Gremlin-human hybrid. If, you, if, you want to, if you're willing to call Forster a human to begin with, but um, I think he learns his lesson, let's put it that way. I did have to, I, it was the first time I ever had to operate uh, what is known in uh, in uh, puppeteering as a butt puppet because your arm goes up that part of the puppet. So um, in the scene where I'm running down the hallway and Greta Gremlin is making romantic advances, <laughs> clinging to me, I am operating the puppet. The uh, uh, My left arm comes out of my suit jacket as expected. My right arm snakes up inside my shirt and comes through the shirt and the puppet is put on my right arm. Meanwhile, in my right jacket pocket, there's an artificial hand that <laughs> looks just like my own, an arm and a hand. And they sew the artificial hand to the head, the back head of the puppet, so that when you move the puppet, your, your other arm just moves in, you know, uh, harmoniously with it as if, as if something is holding on to you. 
and you're simply trying to, to push it off. So as I move the puppet, my hand, my own fake hand moves. Just like flailing around. Which means, <laughs> yeah, but, but what it basically means is that you're beating yourself to death. <laughs> you know, I, that day I came home and I had giant black and blue marks from overacting with myself, which is why I, I realized at that time I never want to work with an actor like me because I'm basically <laughs> out of control. I, I had black and blue all over uh, my chest. It's kind of trying, you're also trying to isolate, to create a different character movement, rhythm, with the puppeteering arm from the rest of your body. Because you're obviously, your arm is going, oh, yes, yes, I want some of this. And, and the rest of your body's going, oh, no, you're not going to get it. So you're basically playing two different um, characters. But not having a puppeteering background, I had never, you know, I hadn't puppeted two different characters at the same time. So... Anyway, it was, a, it was a lesson learned. The black and blue eventually went away. That would have been an odd workman's comp suit now that I think about it. You know, I, I beat myself to death playing a gremlin. Was it as chaotic for you, Zach? Uh, actually, the thing about Gremlins 2 was that it was uh, amazingly easier for me technically because I don't know whether it was necessarily by uh, design or whether they thought it through or whether Charlie Haas or, or Joe or Mike had discussions, but almost throughout the entire movie, every time Gizmo is somewhere with me, he's either in a toolbox, he's in uh, you know the file cabinet, he's somewhere where he's not on my person. He's in a cage with Dr. Catheter, Whereas in the first movie, I'm picking him up and carrying him all the time and I'm strapped. He's strapped to my body and the cables are all over my body. And I don't think there's a single scene. I just rewatched the movie with Bob. I don't think there's a single scene where I pick Gizmo up and place him anywhere. And, and I guess Mike and Joe could tell you whether or not they did that by design because getting him off my body and putting him in like a box or anything, you could just then put all the cables and everything through the back the bottom of the box or the cage or whatever it was. And so he didn't have to stay attached to me. So for Gremlins too, I would show up and it was like, it was just a breeze because <laughs> Rick Baker was a total genius and everybody had thought it through and had decided like, let's not do the impossibly difficult things that we did multiple times the first time. <laughs> That's and true. And you know, the, the, re the reason that he was carrying Gizmo around all the time was that, you know, in the original script of Gremlins, Gizmo turns into Stripe after about a half an hour. Mm -hmm. And when Steven Spielberg saw the designs and stuff, he, 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 he fell in love with Gizmo and he said, no, no, at the last minute, by the way, he said, no, no, he should stick around for the whole movie and be the kid's pal. And so we had to scramble to try to figure out how do we make this bucket of bolts look like it can walk, which we couldn't because we didn't have the technology for that. So he has to be carried around in Billy's backpack and he has to be picked up and put down. And every time Zach would pick up a puppet and put it out of frame, uh, there would actually be another puppet sitting there and we would just, so the camera would just pan off and you would, it would look like he actually put down the one that was already there. Yeah, we did it so many times, we, they came up for, with a name for it. They called it the old switcheroo. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's cool in Gremlins too because we actually get to see Gizmo running around and dancing, something that we didn't have in the first one. We never could have, we never could have even attempted that. In the that first was picture. that was just, but that was really just, you know, puppeteering in front of a blue screen, or is what, or green screen, is what it was. I mean, we just we act, but we were actually, you know, you could hide the puppeteer. You could have a puppeteer with his fingers through the legs, 
and you know, have I, I guess we dressed them in blue or green, whatever we used, and then got rid of that and put in the background. So uh, it was still not digital. It was still it was old school uh, chemical, you know, special effects. But but it worked for for a few shots. For the I think in the when they when he gets picked up by the lab assistant guys, the two twin brothers. I love those guys. He's running. He's running, and then and then in the scene with Christopher Lee where he's dancing in the lab, yeah, that was those are the two places where you actually see his whole body and he's actually able to move, which was definitely an advance from the first movie. Which we originally uh, choreographed to uh, Dancing with Myself and then discovered we couldn't get the rights to it. And so we managed to find a Fats Domino song that had exactly the same beat, and so we used that. That's great. great. <laughs> that seems like that's always the case too. When you pick a song, you're almost just asking for trouble. It never. Well, seems to work it was. Out. We were foolish enough to assume we could buy it, and then it turned out to be really, really expensive. <laughs> it was like, well, this is. We, we can find something. You underestimated the star power of Billy Idol. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> he did the money. I guess. Am I the only person who just had their entire screen freeze and I had to reboot the entire thing? Uh, yep. So. Yeah, it didn't happen. Yeah, no. You're back. Um, so, what was the Billy Idol story? Very quickly. Uh, oh, you have a cat. Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> uh, no, just that we didn't have the rights to the song that we originally used. We had to replace it with um, the last domino. Oh, got it. So now you're up to speed. <laughs> What's the cat's name? <laughs> uh, I, if it was black and white, I didn't say it was probably Ziggy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there he is. Yeah, it's Ziggy. It's, uh, Ziggy's the name of the guy who made my wig from Gremlins 2. Did you name it after Whoa. him? <laughs> Ziggy the wig man, yes. Ziggy was the premier Hollywood wig maker yes. for uh, uh, about two generations. And he made uh, the glorious wig that Mr. Forster sported. I think did I did have uh, some sartorial hair. Well, one of, one of my oldest pals in the business is Joe Pantoliano. And I think it, when Gremlins 2 came along, I remembered that Joey, whenever he did a movie, would always ask for these beautiful clothes and a new hairpiece and all this stuff that he would then proceed to try to walk away with at the end of the picture. And I thought, I'm going to get me some of that. <laughs> so so I, I told Joe I wanted to be really put together. I wanted to have really great looking Armani clothes. I wanted, uh, I talked him into getting these great pair of shoes that I could wear so that when I first appear in the movie, I'm stepping out of a limousine across all of this sort of Chinatown, you know, dirty, all this garbage that's in front of the store. So you see my disdain and my out of placeness by just the expensive shoe that's stepping over the crap to go in this crappy little store to negotiate with this crappy little guy, from my point of view, to get, you know, to do my boss's bidding. So I thought that uh, the whole look of, of just someone who oozed, um, you know, style, and it seemed to go with the with the the building itself, right? We've a state of the art smart building, and the guy who manages the building would look pretty smart himself. So that was the concept that I uh, tried to sell Joe on. I remember dragging one of the at the time I was doing a series on the same lot, uh, Warner Brothers, uh, called China Beach, and one of our co-producers had this long, beautiful hair, and I said, "Would you do me a favor? Could I use you?" Uh, uh, to show Joe Dante the kind of hair I want. And I walked the producer across the lot into Joe's office and I said, this is my friend Fred. I want Fred's hair. So uh, so that was how we got uh, permission, I guess, for Ziggy to make that beautiful 19, late 80s, early 90s kind of big hair look, which if you look at me now, you can see why I was longing to have that at least did once you, in my did life. Did you manage to abscond with it? 
I did indeed. In fact, <laughs> the, hair, did indeed. the hair the hair appears uh, regularly on my oh, did I allow as Alfonso. <laughs> now, I remember I remember I asked the hair department and they probably lied to me and told me they asked you. But you know what? A, a wig, somebody else's wig, you get a hundred dollars for it no, in you rentals. Exactly. You know. It was much on better eBay. to give it to me. It's much better. <laughs> but the I shoes. put it to such good use. It is to 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 return to uh, the character you were referring to, Mike. It is Alfonso's hair. The hair lives on is that uh, in a really character. Weird? Yeah, that is the Gremlins two <laughs> wig. No, absolutely. It's thirty years later, and the wig is still working. Can you say that about everybody in show business? <laughs> no, not even me. But the wig is working. That's amazing. And if you want to see the wig, go to my YouTube channel and you will see Alfonso wearing the Gremlins 2 wig. It's a really good I wig. Have to, I have to plug his YouTube channel. It is really yes. hilarious. You, yes. you really, you really should. The musical yeah. uh, uh, number is quite, quite wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Yes, but no wig in that one. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, did you walk off with anything from, uh, from set? Uh, no, but you know what was funny is that um, when I did the first Gremlins, I you know I came straight from Manhattan, and um, so I had no driver's license. So I basically relied on Phoebe and her beautiful uh, Toyota Cressida to pick me up and take me around various places if I needed to go somewhere. And obviously, Warner Brothers um, and Joe and Mike provided me with transpo to and from the set. But by the time that uh, I did Gremlins 2, I, uh, I had my own car. So I actually got one of the fun perks of doing a studio movie, which is your own studio parking place, which was super fun. And, and um, so I actually had to go and get a car and I got myself a, a pretty nice BMW. I didn't know anything about cars, but my girlfriend at the time was very knowledgeable about cars and somewhat materialistic. So she pushed me towards the BMW <laughs> and... Um, so I had I had the Beamer, and uh, you know it was a, it was a very solid car. I had it actually for twenty years. But the reason why this dovetails back to your question is that every day I left the set on Warner Brothers, they made me pop the trunk to make sure that I wasn't <laughs> stealing Gremlins and Mogwais from <laughs> Gremlins too. And I would say constantly to the guys, same basically the same two guys at the gate. I would say. You know, you do realize that that like I'm one of the actors in the movie and it, it would probably be pretty, you know, ridiculous for me to, to steal, you know, something from the actual movie that I'm doing. So why are you doing this? And I'll never forget it. The guard looked at me and just very flat voice looked at me and said, you have opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like. All right. So literally every day I pop my trunk to, to make sure that I wasn't, uh, you know, taking off with Greta. <laughs> <laughs> that had to be tempting, at least. I would try yeah. to take, take Greta home. And that guard went on to create CSI, I understand. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's crazy, too, how the world of Gremlins 2 uh, and, you know, specifically Clamp Industries, uh, you can see it today. Like, is it really jarring yeah. to, to look it's back the at this House. movie? <laughs> yeah, like, you, you essentially forecasted what 2020 kind of looks like in the corporate world. It's and like just Amazon America. and Facebook. You got, yeah. Well, the Archery Channel. Yeah, you know? yeah. 
but you have to you have to remember that in those days cable channels in those days in those days uh mr trump was a sort of a um a media icon, a New York media icon, you know, with that best-selling, best-selling book. Well, tabloid is exactly. And, you know, he's always promulgating himself as this rich guy who apparently wasn't. But um, had we but known <laughs> the depths that that character would sink to in real life, we probably would have thought about a little differently about how we handled that character. But, you know, he was, he was originally supposed to be the villain in, in Charlie's script, the usual corporate villain. And when John Glover came on, he was so exuberant and so funny uh, and so likable that while we were making the movie, it actually sort of morphed into him being this sort of lovable, overgrown child who just was, you know, it couldn't have had attention span of a gnat. Uh, and so he, he sort of, and then toward the end, he's kind of redeemed because he's like, now he's gonna, you know, he's gonna build Kingston Falls in New Jersey or something like that. So uh, that was a that that's an aspect of the movie that, while I find it problematic in uh, in in what it may have contributed to, <laughs> uh, is actually um, was actually a, a, a turned out much better, I think, than we had imagined that that character would. So in Gremlins three, Daniel Clamp becomes president, or is that too idiotic? <laughs> and then. Daniel Clamp is too nice. He's too nice to be that character. Is this a reunion panel or are we all just pitching Gremlins 3? <laughs> I'm still sold on space. I think space is a good way to go. <laughs> Gremlins in space. And well, the, they, the, um... the actual Gremlins 3 is now being done at, uh, as an animated uh, show at uh, HBO Max. Uh, it's um, Secrets of the Mogwai. It's, set, it's a prequel. Set in uh, China, in the uh, in Shanghai, in the twenties. Oh, Luke character uh, is a young, is a kid, is a young kid, and he, it's how he first meets the Mogwai and stuff. And it's it's I've been involved with it. It's it's really I think pretty clever. And, and these guys love material and they love the characters. And I think they're really doing a good job. But but it was it, you know there have been so many stories bandied about about you know is there a sequel? Is there a script? Is it is it ever going to get made? Um, and it it's obviously a property that's worth money. Uh, and so it will eventually something will happen, but it's okay. mainly been a series of fits. Supposedly, Chris Columbus wrote a script, I think, right? I mean, didn't he? Which he claimed was very dark and kills off Gizmo, which didn't oh, probably wow. endear, <laughs> endear it to the Warner Brothers brass. That's crazy. I mean, it sounds like everybody on set would be okay with it, uh, from what I understand. Well, on, on set, he was, well, you know, you saw the little promo reel that we did for, uh, for Gremlins <laughs> we 2. Did, and, we and, did. You know, how, how, what, about how annoying Gizmo was and how, whatever, <laughs> Madonna and how, you know, his coffee had been playing. You know, he stole Phoebe Kate's trailer. <laughs> he did. He was very, very annoying. No one, no one liked him. And but he's the star. What he do? to drink and everything was terrible. <laughs> I have a question for you, Joe. Was was the was the little uh, Gizmo as Rambo thing? Was that uh, your your idea or Charlie's? I honestly cannot remember, but we did have to get Stallone's permission. Um, yeah, and we did have to get Stallone. Well, we had to actually use the clip of him, so we had to get his yeah. for that. But yeah, um, I, I can't remember. <clears throat> I can't we, remember. It's a long time ago. <laughs> we had all these meetings between <laughs> Joe and Charlie Haas, and you know. We'd all be just throwing ideas out, and so it's impossible to remember exactly who came up with what. You know, we would just throw things. I mean, all these cards were up on a board, and it was like, exactly. you know, after a while, you couldn't remember whose idea anybody was. And there were a lot of ideas. I mean, there are a lot of things that didn't make it into the movie because they oh, were yeah, just they're too impossible. elaborate yeah. and you know, weird. 
<laughs> what were some of your favorites that just couldn't possibly get shot? Well, there was a scene where Dr. Catheter was transforming into various other characters, including Einstein. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember why. Uh, and then there was an elephant grandma. Um, I can't remember why. <laughs> I can't remember why. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember reading somewhere, too, that um, that Christopher Lee was going to mutate into a like an Elvis impersonator, too. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wild. And the, the sets themselves are also pretty amazing. Like, it's it's incredible how, like, each level of Clamp Industries is its own world. Um, could Particularly the TV station, too. Um, I mean, there's so much great satire there, especially with the cooking with the microwave <laughs> show. Um, well, that's the, that's the Ted Turner connection. We also wanted to make... Uh, make this character an amalgam of Ted Turner because he had his own, he had CNN and we wanted to spoof that. Uh, but the, um, the the set, which was built on Warner Brothers' biggest stage, was a multi-level um, mall and with it, with a U-Haul on the third floor. <laughs> uh, and uh, and it, was, it was much remarked upon. Many people came to see it. Many, do, we give, uh, do we give Jim Spencer credit for that? Absolutely. Spencer, who was the production designer on the first movie and on this movie, oh, right. and then on some su- subsequent movies that he did, on the Burbs and you know. Burbs and uh, uh, Inner Space, and um, yeah, it was great. It was it was a great set. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, you could really live in it. It looked like a real. It, it looked like a real place. I mean, the only thing it didn't have was escalators. You really couldn't afford it. <laughs> he, found, he actually found the building, uh, the exterior of the building in New York, which is still there. Unchanged. That's right, because it, it looked, you know, it had this really futuristic look. And so he was able to then design what he, in his, in, you know, the fantasy version of what the inside, the interior would look like. The, the, the real interior was just like a regular lobby, but he made this big atrium, you know, with all these different levels and all the different, it's just as U-Haul, these, these different uh, uh, businesses on the various levels. So it was great. Yeah, it was a great set. The revolving doors were great. <laughs> revolving doors that go crazy. Yeah. Yes. Supposedly, uh, supposedly, Paul Mazursky looked at the set and, and thought about maybe having it transported to New York for scenes from a mall. Uh, but they realized it was right, right. too expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. They probably could have transferred it all for less than the cost of an escalator, though. <laughs> uh, escalators are pretty expensive, actually. Very expensive. That's very surprising. Well, on our, uh, we needed the elevator anyway, because the elevator was part of the story. So we... Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., one of the really cool things about the set too, which most people don't know, is that all of the stores 
to my surprise, when I was walking through the set, were all fully stocked. Yeah. So you could go into a store and say it was like a store that sold Beanie Bit Babies. And even if, even if like, you know, Joe never took the camera in there, still, if you went in the store, the shelves were all stocked and they had working cash registers and everything like that. So it was actually kind of like a real mall. I mean, it was nuts. Wow. It's the Von Stroheim in me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. They have to have the, reg- the, the correct currency in their pocket. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> to really just get the, the emotion, the, the, the truth yeah, of the moment. Yeah. Exactly. That's crazy. So, I mean, like, we, we always talk a lot about um, different gremlin designs that didn't get made. Were there any television shows that you had in mind that you weren't able to get to? Television shows. Like, specific, like you have cooking with, um, like cooking with the oh, microwave you mean, and the horror. Possible. House. I, I, have, I remember something in an early script that, that Florence Henderson was was like fighting a gremlin or something i i mean that we never shot that but the, but it was in an early I, I remember that i don't know why it was it was in an early draft of the script and the, well I guess i'd you, be curious curious to read an early draft of the script to see how much different it is because i'm sure it's I wonder quite if different. he has all he probably does he probably has all the early drafts i don't know yeah i was gonna say even in the home video version you managed to get john wayne to fight gremlins well, that was because the gag with the film breaking wasn't, uh, we didn't think it really translated to VHS, you know, back when there was VHS. Did you have to work with the John Wayne estate to get permission uh, we, for that? We did, and uh, Michael Wayne. Michael Wayne, yeah. His son, Michael, and he uh, he gave us Chad Everett to do the voice because he said that Chad Everett did a great John Wayne, and, and he did. And so, so yeah. of, of course, uh, you know, you, you working with such an iconic actor like Christopher Lee, I'm sure that was uh, I'm sure that was great for you. You, you. Probably grew up watching his movies. What was it like to act alongside him uh, in in all that chaos? Uh, he was a total. To, who are you talking to? General, oh, Bob. Sorry. Uh, well, uh, I'm sure uh, Zach, you, you did more. I, I think I'm only in one scene in the hallway where there's yes. a bunch of barnyard animals <laughs> just running around and <laughs> running around. Uh, but he was just. Uh, but I got to hanging the makeup trailer with him that day. And I just remember what it dignified. I mean, you don't expect a lot of dignity working on a Joe Dante movie, but he, <laughs> he had, he had such extraordinary dignity that it actually rubbed off on the rest of us for a few days. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> and how about yourself, Zach? You, uh, you spent a little time with him. What was that like? I spent a, a fair amount of time with, with Chris because I had a lot of um, scenes with him in the lab and he was pretty much uh, everything that I had kind of hoped that he would be. I mean, he was, uh, uh, Bob just threw out the dignity word, which is very true. Um, I think it manifested itself in uh, the fact that he was perfectly groomed, immaculately dressed, um, phenomenally tall. He yeah, had yeah. to have been 6'4", six, 6'5", six, I would think. At least. Um, and he was just, he's arguably the most polite person that I've ever met. He's way, way up there. And he was very kind and he was very thoughtful and he was surprisingly um, approachable. So that when we had breaks, uh, because, you know, he's, if you grow up watching him in movies, he's, he, he can be intimidating. You know, he can be a scary person. But I, of course, um, first saw him as Scaramanga when I was 10 years old and dating myself but man with the golden gun i'm 10 and i'm in love with james bond movies and so i asked him about that that of course is surreal because you know just to be able to talk to someone like that 
And then I got to also ask him fun questions, you know, like, um, what was, what do you think your best performance has been with all the movies that you've done? Because I don't know if you guys know this, but Gremlins 2 was in fact his 200th movie. We had, we had an actual, we had a little celebration on the set with a, with a cake and everything. Oh, that's cute. (laughs) Yeah. So that obviously led into the, well, now that you've done 200 movies, aside from Gremlins 2, of course, which one do you think is your, uh, is your best performance, you know, and he thought about it and he had a very deep resonant voice. And he said, I think the wicker man, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, cause, cause remember it's 1990. He hadn't done a lot of the, he hadn't done Lord of the Rings. He hadn't done any of the star Wars movies. There's a lot of work he still hadn't done. So he's very, very proud of the wicker man spoke very highly of the director and Edward Woodward. And just, you know, for a film geek like myself, it was very, very cool um, just to talk to him about classic movies and, and stuff like that. So I, I just thought, you know, I thought he was just the best. That's so awesome. Now, was the role originally written for him or did it evolve once he became part of the project? Uh, no, it wasn't necessarily written for him. Uh, I, I do remember we, we... we thought, well, we thought about Stan Freeberg, actually. Did we? Remember? Really? Yeah. Just like I, we thought about Jonathan Winters I for... Wade uh, Axton's role in Gremlins 1, didn't we? No, no, no. no. This is, he was, we thought of him for this because it was sort of a, a goofy mad scientist thing. And then... Uh, um, well, I'm sure it was your idea to hire him, as I recall. Um, I'm probably was but um <laughs> i mean I, w- I was happy with the way it turned out but um and for robert prosky's part we had uh, almost got jonathan winters that's right that's to right. play grandpa fred it was very close and then his agent killed it oh well, robert prosky did an incredible job um no he's a wonderful actor yeah he was a wonderful guy too he was remember he remember him uh, zach Bob Prosky, he was great too. I loved Bob Prosky and and I thought he was a really, I mean, just an incredibly gentle guy. Um, you know, Joe and Mike um have a very good um talent for for not just picking good actors, but also uh and picking people who are who are really quite nice. Um you know, it's kind of like there's a, 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 maybe an unspoken no jerk rule. So yeah. there's, you know, I I don't know whether you guys have meetings with them before and sense whether or not these people are, you know, the way they are. But but Bob was great. And I was surprised at how nice he was, because if you see his kind of signature role in Thief, the Michael Mann movie, he plays phenomenally. Really guy. <laughs> yeah. um, he's, he's a dreadful human being, but he could not have been uh, yeah, a, a nicer person to me. Oh yeah, and I, I guess. Um, uh, did you spend much time with him uh, yourself, Robert? Uh, did I? I don't. I don't, I don't think I, they have I, any I scenes I, together. Yeah, I don't have any scenes together. But I do recall meeting him, and I, and uh, years later, I worked uh, with his son John, who, uh, who uh, was an actor and director. Uh, but uh, I just remember him being a very, very, as everyone said, very sweet and approachable. Uh, man, and I uh, knew his work quite well, mostly I guess from his television work. Um, you know, uh, but I just think I always thought he was a, a, a terrific actor too. But yes, it's true. I, I second what Zach said. It seems like Joe gets together casts of people that are, you know, you look forward to seeing uh, going to work rather than, you know, uh, rather than having the, the one bad apple in the group that everyone has to. Uh, 
have to conform to or deal with or at least excuse their behavior. We don't, it doesn't seem to happen in your movies, Joe. You know, that character was based on uh, Al Lewis, who uh, was Grandpa Munster, of course, yes. and who we, uh, and, and the idea for that, that bit for the movie came from when Mike and I were going to uh, abortively make a movie called Little Man Tate, which was canceled and then made by Jodie Foster later. But we were in Atlanta looking for um, locations and we went into the uh, CNN building, which I think was in the process of being moved to somewhere else. And in the basement of the CNN building, over in the corner, there was this little dungeon set. And it was all sort of falling apart. And it, it, was, it was the one that, uh, the set that Al Lewis used to use in his, he used to do horror movie intros on uh, TBS. And, um, and, and so the idea of this moth-eaten trooper, you know, ending up in the bowels of the CNN building, uh, was ju it, it just started us thinking. And so when we started working on the script with Charlie, we said, you know what, in, in previous iterations, it, it had always been, um, you know, a horror movie, uh, actor or something like that but we thought well if it's a horror movie host who really wants to be a uh, reporter that's that's actually a more interesting character and that's that's pretty much how it developed yeah did we try to get al lewis himself i guess he was probably too old at the time. no we we also thought that was a joke on a joke we yeah didn't, right. we no, didn't no, really no. want to do al lewis because it was so specific and his character kind of comes full circle too. Like he does have that that arc himself, and and you find that all of the characters in the movie have their own little arcs. Like even John Aston as the janitor has his own little story when he's fixing the <laughs> well, water he, fountain. <laughs> he brought a lot to that. John Aston really. I mean, that was like nothing. I don't cool. think that character even had a name in the script. <laughs> oh wow! He, he just went to town with it. He's talking to himself. <laughs> yeah, it was great. So we had we had somebody from the Munsters and somebody from the Adams family in the movie. <laughs> And there's horror gags all over the place. Like you get two Phantom of the po Phantom of the Opera gags in this movie, and they're both incredible. <laughs> the acid in the face. Yeah, yeah. The do not throw acid. It's labeled "Do not throw." <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one of, actually one of the hardest things about this movie is that you have to watch it like a dozen times to really catch all of the gags. Like there's there's audio gags, there's visual gags, there there's well, too that's, much that's, to take in. That's the Mad Magazine influence, you know. I mean, when I, 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 Mike and I grew up on Mad Magazine, and the whole idea of those panels in Mad Magazine was that you could read it once, but then when you read it again, you would see something else that you hadn't seen before. And when we make these movies, we have to watch them endlessly over and over. We have to mix them and edit them and all that stuff. And it's always nice to have a little something in there that maybe you forgot even you put there. And, and then you get to see it again. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's a, that's a good joke. Is there a specific gag that you really love that people don't usually notice? That's sort of hidden in the background somewhere? Probably, but I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, re I remember because of the theme of the script, once I'd read the script, had so many, um, it had so many jokes about the de dehumanizing aspect of technology. And, you know, uh, I guess it was sort of uh, Y2K panic, which was already mm -hmm. starting to build. And uh, and and I asked Joe if if uh, if everyone instead of having name tags could have barcodes, so that I could scan them, so that I did not have to I did not have to learn another human being's name. I thought it was sort of the the ultimate depersonalization of your workforce would be to never. I don't want to know anyone's name. I just had this little scanner so that I could scan them and see their you know their entire employment record right 
before me and my little kind of, you know, primitive uh, first generation uh, Palm Pilot or whatever the heck it was. It was sort of a portable computer. So that was, um, and I do remember thinking, having this incredible sense of power that once I pitched this idea to Joe and he said yes, that then the prop department had to manufacture like four thousand barcode badges, <laughs> yeah. and they had to make they had True. to make this seven thousand dollar computer with a, with a barcode scanning wand that opened like a switchblade, just because I'd asked for it. So the long story short, when I worked on Joe's movies, I've either gotten a thank you note from the prop department or a I will never work with you again note from the prop department. <laughs> I can't remember which I got from Gremlin. That's a, that that turned out to be a great bit, and of course, it was also if you look at the outtake reel, um, it was a bit of a problem because it never it worked. Work. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a hard thing to make, you know. It, it was a, a hard it was thing a, to use. Though, it was sort of like an iPad. It was it was about the size mm -hmm. of an iPad, but it was much bulkier, and you had to mm -hmm. carry it around. And <laughs> no, and Zach. Uh, um, Zach pointed out in the gag reel that there's a there's a moment where uh, everything goes wrong. It was also a hybrid of new technology and old. The fact that it spit out a little piece of paper like a supermarket cash register receipt <laughs> is just so ridiculous that it was it's a digital, 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 and then oh, we got a little slip of paper. You know, it's like it it kind of was a it was a it was sort of half looking forward and half looking backward. But of course, the little papers never spit out properly it never came out correctly and uh and that was a, the source so of he had, so he ad lived the immortal line technology has failed us peltzer <laughs> which is <laughs> only in the outtakes <laughs> that's actually one of the really interesting things about the the transition from gremlins to gremlins 2 like we have you know Mr. Peltzer, who's an inventor trying to make people's lives better with technology. But then when we get to Gremlins 2, technology is just eating everyone's souls. It's, <laughs> it's the real villain in the moon. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's the 90s, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's what Spielberg said the first time he saw the movie. He said, oi, is this what the 90s are going to be like? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you have the, the, the electric gremlin, which ends up being not a puppet. And he's technically technology in himself. And he becomes the big finale gremlin. That's yes, right. that, that was a, a big improvement over our first idea, which was to flood the lobby with cement, which <laughs> didn't seem especially cinematic. That's very difficult to figure out. Figuring out how to kill all the gremlins at the end of the movie was a major script challenge, as I recall. You know, I mean, in fact, I, it was up to, the la I mean, up to the last minute. I don't think we knew how we were going to do that. Yeah, and, 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 and at one point in the rather overlong script, that we much of which we didn't shoot, um, Steven Spielberg had decided that there should be a new character, a sort of a, a Sergeant Rock kind of uh, military guy who swings in on ropes <laughs> and supposedly helps to, to decimate the Gremlins. And it, it, it was, we were already having too many characters in the movie. I mean, Hoyt Axon was supposed to come back at the very end with a little raincoat for Gizmo to keep him getting wet. We didn't have time for that. Uh, so basically, we just had to try to simplify it. And, and the, the simplest way to get rid of the Gremlins was to just electrify them all. And luckily, uh, we had the technology to do that, and we also had the technology to make it look like we had many more gremlins than we really did to fill up our, our lobby. Which yeah, so we actually, that was a miniature. We built a miniature of the lobby with all tiny little gremlin puppets, some of which I still have, actually. Yeah, me too. Oh. Right on. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, and, and then and Zach uh, has a fire hose and sprays them with water, and then the, then they shoots the electric gremlin, and they all get electrocuted. So. It's I just want to jump in because um, so, sometimes 
like uh, Joe and Mike keep saying, it was a long time ago. So there's all sorts of stuff that maybe they've f forgotten or or remember or whatever. But the thing I remember the most is is and and Mike just reminded me of it is when Mike. I don't want to say he was pitching me, but when he when he got on the phone and he was like, "Wait till you see what happens in the second one." You know, before we started, he was like. It's just insane. You go, you're in this building, and then this Sergeant Rock character comes along and blows everything up. <laughs> and I got excited about that part, and I asked him who was going to play that. And Mike, do you remember who you said you had in mind to play that part? No, I don't. Charles Napier. Charles, Charles Napier. That's who right. certainly he has the physique for it. Demi, Demi movies. He was John, he was in a lot of Jonathan Demi's movies. So. But he started out in Russ Meyer movies. That's and right. He has this. He had this incredible lantern jaw. Yeah, he had this incredible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was like not a real person. He would have been great, but we didn't have time for it. I mean, you had a disgruntled Dick Miller. I think you had you had the A team together to you know yeah. to defeat all these gremlins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we felt that it was vague enough that he actually got killed that he got you know killed in the well first no movie. actually in the first movie there's a if you listen hard there's a, on the radio there's oh. a uh the, the reporter before he signs off says and now we talk to mr and mrs futterman at mercy hospital that's <laughs> right that's right that's right yeah so he was because because one of the notes we got from warner brothers was we, we shouldn't kill the futtermans because, <laughs> because everybody liked them well, we didn't really want to kill kill any. We didn't really. Want no, to in fact, you know, it's funny you should mention that because I just happened to find in the garage a uh, a memo from Steven Spielberg about Terry Semel's notes on the first Gremlins and all the things that he was worried about. God, that's a uh, that's a collector's item. I will uh, I will send you a copy of this, but oh. it, it it also includes the uh, the priest at the mailbox scene. He was particularly worried about that. <laughs> priest. Oh yeah, the priest at the mailbox. So we've we've got a few listener questions that we've compiled uh, from fans on Twitter that we wanted to. Uh, what possible question could anybody have about this movie, which speaks for itself? I mean, you have answered a few of them already. I'll at least give you a heads up on that. Yeah, well, the first one uh, from Treviso two thousand two uh, asked if you guys were ever involved in a uh, possible Gremlins three. Well, I think Zach has been, but we're we're not. Zach, well, you? I, I'm not involved. Uh, no. The only thing that I would say about, because, you know, obviously I get asked about Gremlins 3 seven, eight times a day. So I have a kind of a stock answer. Um, it's actually now the uh, 29th anniversary of being asked about Gremlins 3. So that's always exciting too. Um, but, but basically, um, the only thing that I can say is... I don't have any special knowledge other than what Joe just said about Chris Columbus writing a live action script and it was darker and everything like that. But it is, it is my, just my opinion that Warner brothers has a valuable property. They're putting a lot of money into this animated series. And it just strikes me. If you look at the, of corporations with properties, it would surprise me if the animated series was the end game as opposed to a way to, um, shall we say, educate and inculcate a right. younger generation into the joys of the Gremlins mythology. Yeah. Particularly if you set it in China, you're now educating 1.2 billion impressionable minds into the, uh, the Gremlins uh, mythology. So 
if you just look at things like Batman cartoons and Godzilla cartoons, and there are all sorts of ideas where the cartoon is a stepping stone back into a kind of a live action thing. I'm just saying if I was working at Warner Brothers, my guess is I would do the animated film first or series, spread it everywhere because it's been three decades so that you have generations of people who don't really know the movie that well. And then if that does you know, well, then you can then think about taking the enormous financial risk of doing a Gremlins 3, which would probably cost, even with if you, even if you did it all CGI, it'd probably cost you a couple of hundred million dollars to do it correctly. Yeah. Just my two cents. <laughs> Fingers crossed that means more Gremlins at the very least. Well, yeah, like, plus if you have kids rediscovering the Gremlins with the series, they can just ask their parents or their cool aunts and uncles to show them Gremlins and Gremlins 2. <laughs> well, a lot of people have already rediscovered Gizmo thanks to The Mandalorian. That's right. That's right. Oh, yeah, of course. The the biggest ripoff since Furbies. <laughs> I mean, you're telling me it's not a green shaved Gizmo? It's a green shaved Gizmo. One hundred percent, it's a green shaved Gizmo. Uh, that Brandon asks, or at that Brandon asks, uh, was there ever a version of the ending that saw the Gremlins escape the Clamp Building and blend into New York City? No. <laughs> no. Absolutely no. impossible to shoot. Well, it's, it's I don't think we, I don't <laughs> wanted to leave open the possibility of a Gremlins three. I think we, <laughs> you know, end it. Yeah, two is a, enough. We felt. Them escaping out is a really dark ending too. <laughs> uh, so at Packaday asks uh, to Robert Picardo, would your character have gone through with the wedding to the girl Gremlin? <laughs> uh, I believe he was kind of a lonely man. I think he was—he only had his—he <laughs> only had his work. So I think he totally married. They—they uh, they married each other. They—they got—they—they they converted a, a, a an abandoned uh, subway station into an underground house. They had probably thirty, you know, human gremlin hybrid children. And have lived uh, successfully underground in New York now, all these that years. Is the plot of, that's the plot of raw meat. <laughs> <laughs> that's the plot. That's the plot. That was my plot for Gremlins Three. That's what is raw meat. Well, you're, raw meat's a British movie with Christopher Lee. Uh, when, when you you know you've been you've been running away from this horrible thing, and you just sort of go, hmm, well. <laughs> do, you, do you remember, Mike? That day, we I think we did eleven takes of my final reaction. And I, I said this to Joe the other day. I can always tell the one he's going to use in the movie because it's the one after which he goes, you expect me to print that? And that's the one. That's the one that ends up in the movie. It's, it's the case with gremlins and it's the case with inner space with the cowboy primping in the mirror to go out that night. He said the same thing. And those are the, one, those are the takes yeah, right. that made it in the film. So it was the one that was kind of disgusting uh, you know, that he was sort of giving in to the gremlins advances, but it was also, it also kind of made sense because, you know, uh, he wasn't getting any other offers. Nobody else, <laughs> nobody she was else pretty was cute, really, let's face it. She, she was cute. <laughs> um, she had that, you know, that kind of Chanel lipstick that men go for. And uh, I think that he just, if there was no other woman or, or human being expressed any romantic interest in Mr. Forrester, the rest of the movie. So I think he finally decided to just take the offer he had on the table. <laughs> That's great. And this this is actually a pretty good question to go out on, I think, from Awesome King Rex. What was everyone's favorite day on set? Well, uh, we'll start with you, Michael. 
probably the last day of shooting. <laughs> <laughs> There's a producer. I knew he was going to say that. <laughs> How about yourself, Joe? Uh, my favorite day on the set? Um, I really enjoyed making this movie. I, I, I had, a, had a good day every day. And, and any day that the Grumbles didn't break down was a good day. <laughs> and there were many less of those on this movie than there were in the first one. And any day where Phoebe worked was always a great day. She was was always, she was fun. How about you, Robert? What was your favorite day on set? I'm trying to remember. I think probably the day that I got to pull up in a limousine in front of the Curio store, the, the very beginning of the movie, because we were shooting on the back lot at Warner's and it was just so cool to be, you know, uh, it, it, it just felt, um, uh, it was partly being on the historic back lot set. Partly it was the first time I think I had the whole get up on the wig and the beautiful suit and all that. So it just felt very successful. And it, as I said, I was shooting another series on the same lot. So it was kind of cool to go, you know, right from one job to the other, which happened a few times because they had let me out of China beach in order to do gremlins. So I, there were some days where I worked on both. It was at least one day when I worked on both shows the same day. Wow. And I think it was that one. Mm-hmm. All right, Zach, bring it home. What was your favorite day on set at Gremlins 2? Well, sort of echoing kind of a bit of what Joe said, you know, any day that you go to the set and Phoebe Cates is pretending that she absolutely adores you and you get to kiss her and before she goes <laughs> off to work, that's a pretty special day right there. Um so you know what I really liked? I really enjoyed a, a, one of the scenes that I did with uh, an actress named Haviland Morris um, that takes place in the Canadian restaurant, um, which I, I personally Chocolate think is mousse. absolutely <laughs> hilarious scene. I believe it was called um, Shea Winnipeg is the name of the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the Canadian restaurant. And they've got Gordon Lightfoot playing on the background. <laughs> and... Um, and just that whole scene, you know, where she kind of is being very aggressive towards me and I get to play the, the you know, the, oh my gosh, I'm kind of a goody two shoes, have to be nice to, you know, have to be the respect. That was like, um, that was an, a fun, interesting scene to do. I mean, there there were so many great people to work with on Gremlins too. I mean, working with John Glover was incredible. He was a, a absolutely phenomenal um, actor. And the fact that he pulled that performance out, um, you could you could have not changed a word in the script and could have had another actor come in and play Daniel Clamp and it would have been totally completely different um and probably way less sympathetic so it, it was it was just a tremendously fun time for me and because I didn't have to be strapped to gizmo and 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 covered with effects you know this second time around it was it was it was also a much much lighter schedule for me. Um, the first Gremlins, I was probably worked something like seventy out of seventy five days, and on this one, I probably worked less than half. I would think I probably worked something like thirty out of eighty days or forty out of eighty days. So this one was just exponentially easier for me, and I just I just loved working with all the people. Everybody was so great and um, just so much fun. That's great. Well, thank thank you all so much for taking the time to uh, talk you. with us. It was an honor, um, and and of course, thank you so much to you lis- watching this right now. Thank you so much to Salem Horror Fest for hosting this. Um, go watch Gremlins two again if you haven't watched it recently. It's a blast. Uh, buy it again. Buy, <laughs> buy, buy it again. It again. <laughs>
<laughs> keep re- yeah, they, yeah, they they keep reissuing on as the different formats are invented. 4K. We just ultra, ultra, ultra HD. Yeah. Watch it with the commentary. For more, watch the, and then watch the outtakes. The outtakes are great. Yeah, happy Halloween. I guess sounds like a good sign up. <laughs> okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Thank thanks, everybody. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you again to Salem Horror Fest for having us host the panel. And thank you, of course, to Joe Dante, Michael Fennell, Robert Picardo, and Zach Galligan for taking the time. Uh, Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Head over to SalemHorror.com to check out all of the other amazing content available just until the end of this month. There's only a few days left. Yeah, and you know what? Hopefully in 2021, we can actually be there in person again because there's absolutely nothing like Salem at Halloween time. And... This year felt really weird not to be there. So I'm really happy that we got to celebrate in some fashion. And this is our last episode before Halloween. So we also want to wish you guys a happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, fiends. Have an amazing weekend. Have a safe weekend. Wear your masks. Uh, Don't shake any hands with strangers. And um, be safe. Have fun. Do something fun. Watch horror movies. Do what you regularly do. Buy candy at Discounted on Sunday. (laughs) Yep, that's my move. (laughs) But we'll see you again next week. Until next time, I'm John. I'm Kim. Stay Stay creepy. It appears you made it out alive. But we'll get you next time. Help us to grow the horde. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. More terror can be found lurking on our website at nofspodcast.com. And while you're at it, check out all of the other spine-tingling shows on the bloody, disgusting podcast network. Until next time, stay creepy, fiends. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion? Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.